Welcome to Inclusion Unlocked, where we explore the changing equity, diversity and inclusion landscape, bringing you fresh perspectives, lived experiences, practical tips and next practice. I'm Sasha Scott and the founder and CEO of The Inclusive Group. We're an equity, diversity and inclusion consultancy in the business of behaviour. Alongside our guests, we'll be exploring challenging topics and focusing on action, considering the practical steps each of us can take, whether we're leaders, HR practitioners or colleagues, to unlock inclusion in our workplace. Today, I'm really thrilled to be joined by Claire Harvey, MBE. Claire is a renowned diversity leader with an exceptional track record. As Head of Corporate Responsibility and Culture at the then FSA, Head of Inclusive Leadership at KPMG, and now Global Inclusion Lead at Vodafone. Claire took up sitting volleyball in 2010 and went on to captain the GB's women's sitting volleyball team at the 2012 London Paralympics. In 2014, Claire extended her sporting achievements by representing Team GB in the Athletics World Championships in the seated throws events. In 2017, Claire was awarded an MBE for her services to sport and inclusion. So I'm delighted to welcome Claire. Claire, hello, welcome. Lovely to see you and thanks very much for joining us on Inclusion Unlocked. Hi, so, good Claire, to be here. Yeah, great to see you. Um, Claire, many of our listeners will know you well as a diversity leader and as a Paralympian who's performed at very much an elite level. However, what people may not know is that you have a background in forensic psychology and you previously worked as a prison governor and a hostage negotiator. I have to say, I'm super excited to talk to you about not only diversity and inclusion and unlocking that, but really critically about you know that work as a prisoner governor, a hostage negotiator, and what you learned from those roles and how you may apply those now to what you do in, in the field of diversity. But tell us more about hostage negotiation. I bet you're really good at having rows. Um, I'm very calm in a row. I think that's probably whether I'm good at it or not is another matter. I guess it depends which side of it you're on. Um, But it teaches you a lot about influencing and really listening, actually, really listening to what's going on, not just what the person's telling you, but what their body language, what they're not telling you, how they're answering things. It it really hones your skills on empathetic listening, which I think is a a really, really important skill in the workplace um, and helps you think about not just what you want to get out of this, but also what that person is wanting to get out of this and how you can influence the best outcome um, in a really dignified way. It's not about kind of um, dominance or those kind of things which people often think about in prisons. That's not the environment at all. But actually, it's been a hugely useful skill. The whole time um, was hugely beneficial looking back in terms of my career now. And and just thinking about being a hostage negotiator, I I mean, I don't know anything about it, but I'm assuming that the stress levels are off the chart because of what's at stake. And it's for you to keep very calm and therefore by almost by osmosis, keep the person on the other end of the phone or the other side of the door calm. 
Is that? Can you just expand more about how how it how it might work? Yeah, so you're always working towards a goal, um, but it is about absolute de-escalation, building relationship, building trust, um, being able to get past the emotion of what's going on for them, but also for you, of course, because as you said, you know, there are times when you know the person, there are times when it might involve a member of staff, there are times, even if it doesn't involve a member of staff, both everyone in that environment are human beings and have family and loved ones and all of those kind of things so um it it, it's around creating an environment where people feel like they have power but you get to the outcome you wanted um because people normally go into those situations because they feel powerless and they feel like that's the route to getting that sense of power back so one of the skills is giving them a sense of power and decision-making and, you know, very flippantly kind of influencing them to think that what you want them to do was their idea in the first place. How often do we use that in the corporate world? Um, But, but in a way that's dignified and they feel like they have choices and, and and you've built a relationship with them and they trust you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I can see that those are just hugely important life skills and, that empathy to understand where they're coming from and what they want and to be a better listener because one of the things that I I feel I've learned a lot recently is just the importance of really listening um in a in a very true sense uh listening to the other person and I'm not sure that that's a skill people ever well not I'm not sure that's a skill that people work on a lot yeah, definitely. I mean, we live in a fast-paced world, right? I think I read the other day that our attention span is, you know, dramatically reducing because of social media and everything's instant at the moment. But our attention span is something like six and a half seconds now. And in those six and a half seconds, we decide, is this worth listening to or not? Is this relevant to me or not? And if not, we switch off. Um, so I think you have to really make sure what you're saying is relevant and pertinent and it's that concept of trust isn't it trust and one of the things that's really important in those kind of settings not just the actual hostage negotiation settings but in a prison scenario is to not over promise to not promise and say you can do things when you can't and that's hard because as humans we're fixers and sometimes in the stress of the moment and I certainly know this is true from a management point of view sometimes you want to be able to make things better you want to make a situation go away and there's an obvious solution but if you say yes to that solution and you can't deliver it in in that environment things unravel really really quickly but also in the workplace too you know that element of trust of not only do I really listen to you and I understand you and I'm having this conversation about you and your needs, not just what I need to tell you, but also that sense of have I historically done what I'm going to do, that reliability piece, but also that, you know, am I doing this because I'm trying to get to a place where you get what you need or am Mm -hmm. I doing this because if I don't do this, I'll be in trouble or I need you to do something because it will look bad on me if I don't. That that sense of building the relationship and keeping the boundaries um, and not saying things that you can't do, but also understanding that it is a negotiation in its truest sense of world, even though you've got way more power than the other person, I think is a really important um, leadership skill, actually, in an increasingly 
non-structured workplace. Yeah, absolutely. And that lack of structure, um, I think, is really testing inclusivity. Uh, and to your point about you know people switch off really quickly. Hopefully, people haven't switched off the podcast yet. But um, there is that lack of attention. So we've only got a little bit of time to grab people's attention to l- listen to me and, and command respect from that that relationship. If we s- spend a little more time on the prison situation, when you're a prison governor, um, what did you learn about inclusion and diversity from that perspective? Do you, know, do you know what? I learned so much from that whole 16 years. Um, the first is I learned a lot about people. I learned a lot about the importance of putting away my stereotypes, my biases, my my view of, you know, why people are where they are and um, and what that means about a person based on why they're in prison and all of that. Because I learned that people are messy and good people make bad decisions and bad people can do good things. And actually, you know, I think the biggest lesson that I learned was there, but for the grace of God could be any one of us. And it isn't that, you know, there's good people and bad people, but then looking systemically, when you look at most offenders histories, you can see how the structure of society, the the opportunities they've been given, the support that they've given has let them down at virtually every opportunity. And you can see that kind of route of going to where they ended up. And, and, and that for me was really sobering. And that's why I started off as a prison officer. I was entirely rubbish at it, actually. Um, mainly because I was in a why? very... Ma- well, but partly because I was in a really male-dominated environment. I was one of the first few um, women to work in men's prisons. It used to be that women worked in women's prison, men work in men's prison. That got changed over time. And and, and we were the kind of one set of kind of very young women in a very male-dominated environment, much to the point that the prison that I started in, you wore different color, different overcoats based on how many years service you had. And that was a thing you know, and it was a real, you know, if you had a different Mm -hmm. overcoat, it meant that you had, if, you know, that was your seat, and you got to do this, and you didn't. And, and I, I was routinely working with people who had been in that prison, let alone their career longer than I'd been born, actually. And so, you know, those dynamics really helped me to with the benefit of hindsight, helped me to to navigate how to be authentic, but the hard way. So I initially started by trying to replicate what I saw everybody else do, trying to just copy the environment, trying to match that culture. And of course, when you're five foot five and built like a bit of wet string and sound like Minnie Mouse, (laughs) it isn't going to work. And it didn't work. And um, and there was some brilliant, you know, I, I remember some brilliant stories of how badly it worked. Um, and that that the fact that it was really not working made me realise I needed to find another way to do it. And, and that in itself was a really valuable mm-hmm. le- lesson. I think the other thing it taught me was that if you think about the dynamics in a, in a prison, you know, on a wing, you would have... 100 prisoners and two members of staff um and actually if those prisoners wanted to riot they would riot every single day of the week um so it's all about what what we called in those days dynamic security you know you build the relationships that me and the culture that means 
people make the right decisions without you having to enforce them. And of course, there's always bits around the edges. But as a general rule, most people in prison want to just get through prison. Um, and the same is in the workplace, right? You, you, that concept mm. of how do I create the landscape as a leader where I don't need to be telling people, I don't need to be watching people and thinking that if I'm not watching them every two minutes, they're going to be going off and doing something else. How do I create that dynamic relationship and culture that absolutely relies on my relationships and trust and a shared understanding of where we are? And what Mm. are the things that I do that nudge people to behave in the way that I want them to without having to use that positional power? Because... You know, I used to deal mostly with high risk offenders. So, you know, the big, burly, you know, life sentence prisoners, violent offenders. I'm built like a bit of wet string. If, you know, I had no, I had no position. If at the point that I go, I'm telling you, you need to do this. There's nowhere to go from that. So you had to learn yeah. other ways to, right. to get. And that's the very, very last resort. And I think oh, that's, that's really so useful as a leader. So interesting. So interesting. And it's interesting where you where you where you said there, but for the grace of God, because from what I'm hearing, so you learn to change the way you look at people and why they're in there and what the backstory is and that you know, there's always an opportunity for change. And I, I remember, you know, we remember sort of profound experiences. I remember at probably at 21 going with um, a very senior female police officer to Holloway to look around and um, then thinking myself there, but for the grace of God, I sat in on a, a focus group and, and it's ironic, but I heard someone who speaks like me and I've got a fairly distinctive accent. And I thought, gosh, you know, any, it, it just, the, just fascinating. And, and also reflecting on what you've just said, the, the demarcation of, you know, the color, sorry, the, the type of overcoat. I, I, I don't know, but hearing that story, it makes me think about hierarchy, about traditions, about norms and about how you come into that and you're you know you you learn your authentic way of doing it because you know that's not necessarily going to work for you the old ways of doing it um we could talk forever about this but I'm going to I'm very aware of that six and a half seconds that we've got or six and a half minutes or whatever um so quite another question I've got you slightly going into a different area Claire I mean I'm very very in awe of you you've achieved huge success through your leadership in the diversity space I think the last few years have been really, really hard for diversity practitioners, for people leaders, for employee resource groups, um, you know, champions within organisations. How do you find motivation to keep going? And also for people who feel like they're sort of treading water or not achieving the change, have you got any advice or insights? Because I think it's a, it, it's quite an um, increasingly difficult role to have within organization if you're managing or helping to you know lead edi initiatives and it feels exhausting at the moment so just some thoughts on that please yeah i think i I, i'm always in some ways i'm almost glad it's got harder um because i think what we're seeing now is the nuance 
you know, we've we've gone through the the cycle, the necessary cycle of doing all the easy stuff, you know, the performative stuff, you know, the the stuff that tweaks around the edges but doesn't really infiltrate the culture. A bit like you know, women's development programs. Let's have a women's development program. Doesn't change the way that we recruit. Doesn't change the way that line managers behave. Doesn't change our unspoken rules of success. But we feel like we're doing something, and it fixes the people thinking about what we just talked about fixes the people to learn how to behave in the accepted cultural way um and and those easy fun things are the things that are important to get done and we still need to do some of them to keep people kind of engaged and and with us but i think what we're getting to now is the real valuable stuff the real systemic change stuff the real um the real understanding of how to move culture forward and and it is tough because if it wasn't tough, we would have done it hundreds of years mm. ago. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, sometimes I ground myself in the reality of, uh, and maybe this is where I'm lucky coming from that kind of psychology background. I ground myself in the reality of understanding how brains work, understanding how culture works, understanding how organizational culture works, and therefore almost not expecting it to be easy. Um but then I think it's a really good opportunity for us all to be really critical of ourselves and say, if I've done that for two years and it's not changed anything, then it's no point doing it again. Well, I've got to look at rather than why aren't they doing it? What is it that I've created that isn't working and how do I make it better? How do I evolve it? How do I look for those incremental nudges? Um, and I do think that's nuanced to the conversation. I think we're moving away from... Um, thankfully, in my view, from managing diversity to practicing inclusion. So, you know, embedding inclusion in the leadership and the culture of an organization rather than here's what we normally do and here's the add-on stuff we're going to do for different types of people. I think we're understanding um, the way to influence. So I saw a really interesting piece of research yesterday that said... um, around the business case for diversity you know why do we roll out the business case for diversity we don't for anything else I've never heard anyone justify why health and safety is important or financial governance you know Mm. before you can Mm. even enter the conversation and why do we want to change people's minds you know actually everyone can think whatever they like no one has ever been hurt by a racist thought or or a you know homophobic thought They've been hurt by the behaviours. So let's not keep trying to change people's minds. Of course, that's what we ultimately want. But actually, the incremental nudge is let's focus on the expected behaviours first. And then Mm -hmm. the mind thing might happen. Or even if it doesn't happen, do you know what? You know, it's not my job to understand what to, to get people to think how I want them to think. It's my job to make sure the culture is right. So I think that's a really important nuance. The other thing I think is the pandemic has really really shone a light on the realities of the equality and the realities of the need for nuance in a culture and flexibility in a culture and Mm. and that means the solutions are much harder to come by um but I think we'll be better off for it I think this period of, of discomfort and the need to question things and the things that we've always believed to be true versus the things that we are doing now I think will lead us to more sustained change and that I find optimistic and hopeful and 
I think some of I, I agree with you. I think some of the silver linings that have come out of the pandemic, or we are learning through the pandemic, has been some examples of the workplace becoming more humanized, more uh, more human centric. And I think that some of that's been exemplified by people just being far more open about the stuff going on around them. You and me, the stuff going on around them. Um, and that show of vulnerability sometimes from leaders then implicitly gives a permission to say it's okay. We're, as you, to use your words, yeah, we're messy and this is complicated and it's not easy. But, and, and I think there is a misplacement of expectations when it comes to EDI that people think, oh, we've got someone, so we're going to get change really quickly. And change isn't quickly, it's glacial, because as you say, it's cultural. And one of the things I think, and I've increasingly believed this, is that actually to get any change, a lot of that work has to just begin with us and the introspection and the, you know, the, the work we do on ourselves. Having said that, Claire, you're absolutely right. We, you and I are not in the business of getting people to change their thoughts necessarily but maybe to say there are different ways that you might consider but what you believe is what you believe uh is what you do that that matters around the culture etc um as someone recently said to me in a meeting and i was shocked i'm really shocked and they said we're not buying your ideology sasha and i thought gosh i, I hope i'm not peddling an ideology it's just quite interesting i think there's a lot of tension in the space at the moment and i I think we're at some kind of inflection point. But I'm going to change the subject. Uh, I'd like to talk to you about sitting volleyball and what inspired you to bring together a team to aim for London 2012, which is just completely awesome because you were up against a really incredibly challenging time frame. Can you tell us more about that? I'd love to understand. Yeah, I think... I'd love to say that I, I, I sat and I thought and I thought this is what we're going to do. That isn't true at all. It, it just kind of happened. And I think sometimes we want leaders to have that and, and we reward people to have that vision and to almost, I think, sometimes hold on to that vision way too long. And we reward people for just keeping going when everything feels impossible, whereas actually sometimes we need to understand why things feel impossible and do something different. My granny, who I take a lot of thingy for, used to say, um, don't hold on to a mistake just because you took a long time to make it. And I think that's something that I always reflect back on in the mm. workplace. But um, so the when when I acquired my disability, um, I went to a have a go disability day and it was in the run up to London 2012. And the thing about home games is that um, you can add, you can put more teams in than you normally would if you're the home nation. So for us, it meant we didn't have to qualify in a competition in the same way, say, we do now. Um, instead, we just had to prove to the British Paralympic Association that we were credible and we weren't going to be an embarrassment to the country, basically. Um, and that was our journey. And we had 18 months to do that, which in, in business, oh, if you right. think about that, no, it's all good. Life, life happens, huh? Life, um, yeah. If, if you think about the um, a business proposition, you would never take that on you know it no. seems crazy um but we just wanted to see what would happen we wanted to see where we'd get to and actually i think one of the benefits of the team is we all came to it for really different reasons so there were people in my team who 
who just really wanted to prove that they had value in society because they had that stigma of a disability. There were people mm-hmm. in my team who are deeply competitive and wanted to compete. Um, and there were people in my team who really wanted to have that Paralympian badge. There were other people who, do you know, it was just an opportunity and they didn't really care one way or the other. There were other people in the team who wanted the GB tracksuit and this seemed like an easier, the easiest route in. And yeah. And it took me a while to work out that all of those things were okay. And when I think about the workplace, I think about how much we try and try and create a conformed um, reason for being there and and a motivation. And um, there's lots of research that tells us that when we're recruiting and things like that, we we really look for. Um, intrinsic motivation we want people to say things like you know I really care about this organization or I care about this sector and I've always wanted to work here and all of these things whereas actually if somebody was to say do you know what I just need a job and this is quite well paid and I think I can do it fine and and but these are the other stuff that's going on in my life we would be very unlikely to take that person Whereas actually, in reality, any of those motivations, as long as the person can do the job, is a really good one. Um, so that that was a good learning for me. But we started that journey. And I think one of the benefits and challenges was we did have such a short timeline, which meant we couldn't we couldn't be everything. We couldn't be perfect. We couldn't create that perfect action plan where we think of every eventuality and we plan everything to within an inch of its life and it looks lovely on a powerpoint deck those things that we all love to do in the workplace we had to think about what is where can we accelerate where can we not where are we going to have to live with our weaknesses where you know where where are we going to maximize our opportunity so volleyball is not a sport in the uk really and sitting volleyball is a fringe of a fringe so we didn't have the technical skills we play against countries who grow up playing volleyball and therefore when they acquire a disability they just need to learn to play a different version but the the basic volleyball knowledge and technical skills are absolutely already there and so we knew we were never going to be able to compete in that sphere so we looked at where could our advantage be and our advantage where we decided we did have the opportunity was in the team, in the way we work together, in our individual fitness levels and how we most utilised the skill set within the team rather than all being brilliant individuals. Um, and I think, again, that that really made me reflect on the workplace and how much mm. we, we expect individual, how much we reward individual contributions versus that team dynamics and we touch around the edges of that in the workplace we do the whole performance you know versus behavior kind of Mm -hmm. chart that most organizations do now but that for me isn't sophisticated enough it's not just your behaviors it's the working of the team and the you know what about those people in your team who their role means they're never at the sexy end I have, the, I have yeah. that in volleyball. I'm a setter. So my job is basically the ball comes in from the opposition. Somebody gets to it. I then have to get to that ball. And my decision is, who am I giving it to? Who's the person most likely to be in the best position to hit it and score a point? Which means right. when you tally the score, the points at the end, when you look at who did the brilliant serves, who did the brilliant blocks, who did the brilliant stuff, I'm very rarely on that sheet because that's not my job. Yeah. What about those people in the workplace who do brilliant things that are so essential, 
but they're just not in the sexy end of our delivery mm. stuff. And, and I Don't think there's valued. something around that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot around that. When I'm listening to that and I'm thinking about how you establish the psychological safety in that team, how there's the respect, how there's the appreciation of different contributions. And you're absolutely right. I mean, it's not sophisticated to be the blunt instrument that we currently use. And the, and the, and I think in, in work environments, there's just often such an overvalue of people with a certain personality type over others to the total dismissiveness. And that creates in-groups and out-groups. And those are the more subtle nuanced conversations we also need to be having around who, who gets who gets the you know the glory and how that's distributed. I'm mindful that we've got a couple of minutes on the clock and I just want to end um, just asking you actually about the um, about the future. I know that you do a lot of work with schools and with diversity role models and I'm just interested in why you work with younger people and what you're learning from them before we close. So I think there's two reasons. One is I, I've really learned about myself that I'm not good at doing one thing. So people always say to me, how do you manage, you know, an elite sport program? And in fact, at the moment, two and uh, a full time job. And the reality is I've tried just doing sport. I've tried just doing work and it really doesn't work for me. So I, I know mm -hmm. enough about myself to know I need to have lots of fingers in lots of different pies. For me, the work in schools is when I think about the the psychology of culture, when I think about the psychology of our behaviours and our views on the world, you know, everything tells us that we develop those really, really young. And actually, when we get to our age, obviously, we're both 21. Um, obviously. You, you know, it's really hard to unpick them. And those behaviours are really, really entrenched. Um, and we come into an environment and we learn to fit really, really quickly. How, how often in the workplace do you employ someone who's super new and super exciting and they're going to upset the culture and then within six months they're behaving in exactly the same way because culture is really strong. So my thinking is if we can get at the point where people are more open and it's absolutely a fallacy that young people are just super inclusive and they all get it, that's just, I'd love that to be true. It's not true. Um, but if we can do that understanding and that practice and that behaviour and create the the educational environment where that's important and therefore everyone thrives and we remove some of those systemic inequalities that we know come from education years mm -hmm. then we might just be in a better place and our jobs in the corporate world might just be a bit easier that's generally it <laughs> brilliant love it Lovely. Well, Claire, I can see that we're 30 minutes on the clock. Um, and I just want to say a massive thank you from me. Um, we love working with you. And you're, an, frankly, an inspiration. I think I heard a rampaging cat and a dog trying to get into the room. Such a shame they're not on the, on the, on the podcast today. <laughs> no. But honestly, thank you so, so very much. I really appreciate it. And thanks to everybody who's tuned in to this episode of Inclusion Unlocked. If hearing from Claire has inspired you to do more, I'd love to hear from you. Inclusive Group works across industries to provide commercial solutions, helping you drive real change when it comes to culture, inclusion, belonging, equity and diversity. We work extensively with organisations, HR functions and leadership teams to navigate a changing diversity landscape. If you want to hear more about our work, 
or arrange a chat, please click on the link on the landing page of this episode and follow the link to our website.